This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.blogsome.com. Childhood by Leo Tolstoy. Chapter 16. Verse Making. Rather less than a month after our arrival in Moscow, I was sitting upstairs in my grandmamma's house and doing some writing at a large table. Opposite to me sat the drawing-master, who was giving a few finishing touches to the head of a turbaned Turk, executed in black pencil. Woloda, with outstretched neck, was standing behind the drawing-master and looking over his shoulder. The head was Woloda's first production in pencil, and today, Grandmama's name-day, the masterpiece was to be presented to her. "'Aren't you going to put a little more shadow there?' said Woloda to the master, as he raised himself on tiptoe and pointed to the Turk's neck. "'No, it is not necessary,' the master replied, as he put pencil and drawing-pen into a japanned folding-box. "'It is just right now, and you need not do anything more to it. As for you, Nikolinka,' he added, rising and glancing askew at the Turk, "'won't you tell us your great secret at last? What are you going to give your grandmamma? I think another head would be your best gift.' but good-bye, gentlemen, and taking his hat and cardboard, he departed. I, too, had thought that another head than the one at which I had been working would be a better gift. So, when we were told that Grandmamma's name-day was soon to come round, and that we must each of us have a present ready for her, I had taken it into my head to write some verses in honour of the occasion, and had forthwith composed two rhymed couplets, hoping that the rest would soon materialise. I really do not know how the idea— one so peculiar for a child, came to occur to me, but I know that I liked it vastly, and answered all questions on the subject of my gift by declaring that I should soon have something ready for Grandmamma, but was not going to say what it was. Contrary to my expectation, I found that, after the first two couplets executed in the initial heat of enthusiasm, even my most strenuous efforts refused to produce another one. I began to read different poems in our books, but neither Dmitriev nor Derjavin could help me. On the contrary, they only confirmed my sense of incompetence. Knowing, however, that Karl Ivanitch was fond of writing verses, I stole softly upstairs to burrow among his papers, and found, among a number of German verses, some in our R Russian language, which seemed to have come from his own pen. To L. Remember near, remember far, remember me. Today be faithful, and forever. I, still beyond the grave, remember that I have well loved thee. Karl Meyer These verses, which were written in a fine round hand on thin letter-paper, pleased me with the touching sentiment with which they seemed to be inspired. I learnt them by heart, and decided to take them as a model. The thing was much easier now. By the time the name-day had arrived, I had completed a twelve-couplet congratulatory ode, and sat down to the table in our schoolroom to copy them out on vellum. Two sheets were soon spoiled. Not because I found it necessary to alter anything, the verses seemed to me perfect, but because, after the third line, the tail end of each successive one would go curving upward and making it plain to all the world that the whole thing had been written with a want of adherence to the horizontal, a thing which I could not bear to see. The third sheet also came out crooked, but I determined to make it do. In my verses I congratulated Grandmamma, wished her many happy returns, and concluded thus. Endeavouring you to please and cheer, we love you like our mother dear. This seemed to me not bad, yet it offended my ear somehow. 
Love you like our mother dear, I repeated to myself. What other rhyme could I use instead of dear? Fear? Steer? Well, it must go at that. At least the verses are better than Karl Ivanitch's. Accordingly, I added the last verse to the rest. Then I went into our bedroom and recited the whole poem aloud with much feeling and gesticulation. The verses were altogether guiltless of meter, but I did not stop to consider that. Yet the last one displeased me more than ever. As I sat on my bed, I thought, Why on earth did I write, Like our mother, dear? She is not here, and therefore she need never have been mentioned. True, I love and respect Grandmamma, but she is not quite the same as, Why did I write that? What did I go and tell a lie for? They may be verses only, yet I needn't quite have done that. At that moment the tailor arrived with some new clothes for us. "'Well, so be it,' I said in much vexation, as I crammed the verses hastily under my pillow, and ran down to adorn myself in the new Moscow garments. They fitted marvellously, both the brown jacket with yellow buttons, a garment made skin tight and not to allow room for growth as in the country, and the black trousers, also close-fitting so that they displayed the figure and lay smoothly over the boots.' At last I have real trousers on, I thought, as I looked at my legs with the utmost satisfaction. I concealed from every one the fact that the new clothes were horribly tight and uncomfortable, but, on the contrary, said that, if there were a fault, it was that they were not tight enough. For a long while I stood before the looking-glass as I combed my elaborately pomaded head, but, try as I would, I could not reduce the topmost hairs on the crown to order. As soon as ever I left off combing them, they sprang up again, and radiated in different directions, thus giving my face a ridiculous expression. Karl Ivanitch was dressing in another room, and I heard someone bringing him his blue frock-coat and underlinen. Then, at the door leading downstairs, I heard a maidservant's voice, and went to see what she wanted. In her hand she held a well-starched shirt, which she said she had been sitting up all night to get ready. I took it, and asked if Grandmamma was up yet. "'Oh, yes, she has had her coffee, and the priest has come. "'My word, but you look a fine little fellow,' added the girl, with a smile at my new clothes. "'This observation made me blush, so I whirled around on one leg, "'snapped my fingers, and went skipping away, "'in the hope that by these manoeuvres I should make her sensible "'that even yet she had not realized quite what a fine fellow I was. "'However, when I took the shirt to Karl, "'I found that he did not need it, having taken another one.' Standing before a small looking-glass, he tied his cravat with both hands, trying, by various motions of his head, to see whether it fitted him comfortably or not, and then took us down to see Grandmamma. To this day I cannot help laughing when I remember what a smell of pomade the three of us left behind on the staircase as we descended. Karl was carrying a box which he had made himself, Woloda, his drawing, and I my verses while each of us also had a form of words ready with which to present his gift. Just as Karl opened the door, the priest put on his vestment and began to say prayers. During the ceremony, Grandmamma stood leaning over the back of a chair, with her head bent down. Near her stood Papa. He turned and smiled at us as we hurriedly thrust our presence behind our backs and tried to remain unobserved by the door. The whole effect of a surprise, upon which we had been counting, was entirely lost. When at last every one had made the sign of the cross, I became intolerably oppressed with a sudden, invincible, and deadly attack of shyness, so that the courage to offer my present completely failed me. I hid myself behind Karl Ivanitch, who solemnly congratulated Grandmamma, and, 
transferring his box from his right hand to his left, presented it to her. Then he withdrew a few steps to make way for Wolada. Grandmamma seemed highly pleased with the box, which was adorned with a gold border, and smiled in the most friendly manner in order to express her gratitude. Yet it was evident that she did not know where to set the box down, and this probably accounts for the fact that she handed it to Papa, at the same time bidding him observe how beautifully it was made. His curiosity satisfied, Papa handed the box to the priest, who also seemed particularly delighted with it, and looked with astonishment first at the article itself, and then at the artist who could make such wonderful things. Then Woloda presented his Turk, and received a similarly flattering ovation on all sides. It was my turn now, and Grandmamma turned to me with her kindest smile. Those who have experienced what embarrassment is, know that it is a feeling which grows in direct proportion to delay, while decision decreases in similar measure. In other words, the longer the condition lasts, the more invincible does it become, and the smaller does the power of decision come to be. My last remnants of nerve and energy had forsaken me, while Karl and Woloda had been offering their presents, and my shyness now reached its culminating point. I felt the blood rushing from my heart to my head, one blush succeeding another across my face, and drops of perspiration beginning to stand out on my brow and nose. My ears were burning, I trembled from head to foot, and, though I kept changing from one foot to the other, I remained rooted where I stood. "'Well, Nikolinka, tell us what you have brought,' said Papa. "'Is it a box or a drawing?' There was nothing else to be done. With a trembling hand I held out the folded fatal paper, but my voice failed me completely, and I stood before Grandmamma in silence. I could not get rid of the dreadful idea that, instead of a display of the expected drawing, some bad verses of mine were about to be read aloud before everyone, and that the words, "'Our mother dear,' would clearly prove that I had never loved, but had only forgotten her. How shall I express my sufferings when Grandmamma began to read my poetry aloud, when, unable to decipher it, she stopped halfway and looked at Papa with a smile, which I took to be one of ridicule, when she did not pronounce it as I had meant it to be pronounced, and when her weak sight, not allowing her to finish it, she handed the paper to Papa and requested him to read it all over again from the beginning. I fancied that she must have done this last because she did not like to read such a lot of stupid, crookedly written stuff herself, yet wanted to point out to Papa my utter lack of feeling. I expected him to slap me in the face with the verses and say, "'You bad boy, so you have forgotten your mamma. Take that for it!' Yet nothing of the sort happened. On the contrary, when the whole had been read, Grandmamma said, "'Charming!' and kissed me on the forehead. Then our presence together with two cambric pocket-handkerchiefs and a snuff-box engraved with Mamma's portrait, were laid on the table attached to the great Voltairian armchair in which Grandmamma always sat. "'The Princess Barbara Ilenitsa,' announced one of the two footmen, who used to stand behind Grandmamma's carriage. But Grandmamma was looking thoughtfully at the portrait on the snuff-box, and returned no answer. "'Shall I show her in, madam?' repeated the footman. CHAPTER Seventeen. The Princess Kornakoff. Yes, show her in, said Grandmamma, settling herself as far back in her armchair as possible. The princess was a woman of about forty-five, small and delicate, with a shriveled skin and disagreeable grayish-green eyes, the expression of which contradicted the unnaturally suave look of the rest of her face. Underneath her velvet bonnet, adorned with an ostrich feather, was visible some reddish hair, while against the unhealthy color of her skin, her eyebrows and eyelashes looked even lighter and redder than they would otherwise have done. Yet, 
for all that, her animated movements, small hands, and peculiarly dry features communicated something aristocratic and energetic to her general appearance. She talked a great deal, and, to judge from her eloquence, belonged to that class of persons who always speak as though someone were contradicting them, even though no one else may be saying a word. First she would raise her voice, then lower it, and then take on a fresh access of vivacity as she looked at the persons present, but not participating in the conversation, with an air of endeavouring to draw them into it. Although the princess kissed Grandmamma's hand and repeatedly called her, My good aunt, I could see that Grandmamma did not care much about her, for she kept raising her eyebrows in a peculiar way while listening to the princess's excuses why Prince Michael had been prevented from calling and congratulating Grandmamma as he would like so much to have done. At length, however, she answered the princess's French with Russian, and with a sharp accentuation of certain words. "'I am much obliged to you for your kindness,' she said. "'As for Prince Michael's absence, pray do not mention it. He has so much else to do. Besides, what pleasure could he find in coming to see an old woman like me?' Then, without allowing the princess time to reply, she went on, "'How are your children, my dear?' "'Well, thank God, aunt, they grow and do their lessons and play, "'particularly my eldest one, Etienne, who is so wild "'that it is almost impossible to keep him in order. "'Still, he is a clever and promising boy. "'Would you believe it, cousin?' "'This last to Papa, since Grandmamma, "'altogether uninterested in the princess's children, "'had turned to us, taken my verses out from beneath the presentation box, "'and enfolded them again. "'Would you believe it, but one day not long ago?' "'And leaning over towards Papa, the princess related something or other with great vivacity. Then, her tale concluded, she laughed, and, with a questioning look at Papa, went on. "'What a boy, cousin! He ought to have been whipped, but the trick was so spirited and amusing that I let him off.' Then the princess looked at Grandmamma and laughed again. "'Ah, so you whip your children, do you?' said Grandmamma, with a significant lift of her eyebrows, and laying a peculiar stress on the word whip." "'Alas, my good aunt,' replied the princess, in a sort of tolerant tone and with another glance at Papa, "'I know your views on this subject, but must beg to be allowed to differ with them. However much I have thought over and read and talked about the matter, I have always been forced to come to the conclusion that children must be ruled through fear. To make something of a child, you must make it fear something. Is it not so, cousin? And what, pray, do children fear so much as a rod?' As she spoke, she seemed to look inquiringly at Woloda and myself, and I confess that I did not feel altogether comfortable. "'Whatever you may say,' she went on, "'a boy of twelve, or even of fourteen, is still a child and should be whipped as such, but with girls, perhaps, it is another matter.' "'How lucky it is that I am not her son,' I thought to myself. "'Oh, very well,' said Grandmamma, folding up my verses and replacing them beneath the box, as though, after that exposition of views, the princess was unworthy of the honour of listening to such a production. "'Very well, my dear,' she repeated. "'But please tell me how, in return, you can look for any delicate sensibility from your children.' Evidently Grandmamma thought this argument unanswerable, for she cut the subject short by adding, "'However, it is a point on which people must follow their own opinions.' The princess did not choose to reply, but smiled condescendingly, and as though out of indulgence to the strange prejudices of a person whom she only pretended to revere. "'Oh, by the way, pray introduce me to your young people,' she went on presently, as she threw us another gracious smile. Thereupon we rose and stood looking at the princess, without in the least knowing what we ought to do to show that we were being introduced. "'Just the princess's hand,' said Papa. 
"'Well, I hope you will love your old aunt,' she said to Wallada, kissing his hair, "'even though we are not near relatives. "'But I value friendship far more than I do degrees of relationship,' she added to Grandmamma, who nevertheless remained hostile and replied, "'Eh, my dear, is that what they think of relationships nowadays?' "'Here is my man of the world,' put in Papa, indicating Wallada. "'And here is my poet,' he added, as I kissed the small dry hand of the princess, with a vivid picture in my mind of that same hand holding a rod and applying it vigorously. "'Which one is the poet?' asked the princess. "'This little one,' replied Papa, smiling. "'The one with the tuft of hair on his topknot.' "'Why need he bother about my tuft?' I thought to myself as I retired into a corner. "'Is there nothing else for him to talk about?' I had strange ideas on manly beauty. I considered Karl Ivanich one of the handsomest men in the world, and myself so ugly that I had no need to deceive myself on that point. Therefore any remark on the subject of my exterior offended me extremely. I well remember how, one day after luncheon, I was then six years of age, the talk fell upon my personal appearance, and how Mama tried to find good features in my face, and said that I had clever eyes and a charming smile. How nevertheless, when Papa had examined me, and proved the contrary, she was obliged to confess that I was ugly, and how, when the meal was over, and I went to pay her my respects, she said as she patted my cheek, "'You know, Nikolinka, nobody will ever love you for your face alone, so you must try all the more to be a good and clever boy.' Although these words of hers confirmed in me my conviction that I was not handsome, they also confirmed in me an ambition to be just such a boy as she had indicated. Yet I had my moments of despair at my ugliness— for I thought that no human being with such a large nose, such thick lips, and such small grey eyes as mine could ever hope to attain happiness on this earth. I used to ask God to perform a miracle by changing me into a beauty, and would have given all that I possessed, or ever hoped to possess, to have a handsome face. CHAPTER Eighteen, PRINCE IVAN IVANOVICH When the princess had heard my verses, and overwhelmed the writer of them with praise, Grandmamma softened to her a little. She began to address her in French, and to cease calling her, My dear. Likewise she invited her to return that evening with her children. This invitation having been accepted, the princess took her leave. After that, so many other callers came to congratulate Grandmamma that the courtyard was crowded all day long with carriages. Good morning, my dear cousin, was the greeting of one guest in particular, as he entered the room and kissed Grandmamma's hand. He was a man of seventy, with a stately figure clad in a military uniform, and adorned with large epaulettes, an embroidered collar, and a white cross round the neck. His face, with its quiet and open expression, as well as the simplicity and ease of his manners, greatly pleased me, for, in spite of the thin half-circle of hair which was all that was now left to him, and the want of teeth disclosed by the set of his upper lip, his face was a remarkably handsome one. Thanks to his fine character— handsome exterior, remarkable valor, influential relatives, and, above all, good fortune, Prince Ivan Ivanovich had early made himself a career. As that career progressed, his ambition had met with a success which left nothing more to be sought for in that direction. From his earliest youth upward he had prepared himself to fill the exalted station in the world to which fate actually called him later. Wherefore, although in his prosperous life, as in the lives of all, there had been failures, misfortunes, and cares, he had never lost his quietness of character, his elevated tone of thought, or his peculiarly moral, religious bent of mind. Consequently, though he had won the universal esteem of his fellows, he had done so less through his important position than through his perseverance and integrity, 
while not of specially distinguished intellect, the eminence of his station, once he could afford to look down upon all petty questions, had caused him to adopt high points of view. Though in reality he was kind and sympathetic, in manner he appeared cold and haughty, probably for the reason that he had forever to be on his guard against the endless claims and petitions of people who wished to profit through his influence. Yet even then his coldness was mitigated by the polite condescension of a man well accustomed to move in the highest circles of society. Well educated, his culture was that of a youth of the end of the last century. He had read everything, whether philosophy or belles lettres, which that age had produced in France, and loved to quote from Racine, Corneille, Boileau, Moliere, Maintain, and Fenelon. Likewise he had gleaned much history from Segur, and much of the old classics from French translations of them, but for mathematics, natural philosophy, or contemporary literature he cared nothing whatever. However, he knew how to be silent in conversation, as well as when to make general remarks on authors whom he had never read, such as Goethe, Schiller, and Byron. Moreover, despite his exclusively French education, he was simple in speech and hated originality, which he called the mark of an untutored nature. Wherever he lived, society was a necessity to him, and, both in Moscow and the country, he had his reception days, on which practically all the town called upon him. An introduction from him was a passport to every drawing-room. Few young and pretty ladies in society objected to offering him their rosy cheeks for a paternal salute, and people even in the highest positions felt flattered by invitations to his parties. The prince had few friends left now like grandmamma, that is to say, few friends who were of the same standing as himself, who had had the same sort of education, and who saw things from the same point of view, wherefore he greatly valued his intimate, long-standing friendship with her, and always showed her the highest respect. I hardly dared to look at the prince, since the honour paid him on all sides, the huge epaulettes, the peculiar pleasure with which grandmamma received him, and the fact that he alone seemed in no way afraid of her, but addressed her with perfect freedom, even being so daring as to call her cousin, awakened in me a feeling of reverence for his person almost equal to that which I felt for grandmamma herself. On being shown my verses, he called me to his side and said, Who knows, my cousin, but that he may prove to be a second Derjavian? Nevertheless, he pinched my cheeks so hard that I was only prevented from crying by the thought that it must be meant for a caress. Gradually the other guests dispersed, and with them Papa and Woloda. Thus only Grandmamma, the Prince, and myself were left in the drawing-room. "'Why has our dear Natalia Nikolaevna not come to-day?' asked the Prince, after a silence. "'Ah, my friend,' replied Grandmamma, lowering her voice and laying a hand upon the sleeve of his uniform, she would certainly have come if he had, she had been at liberty to do what she likes. She wrote to me that Peter had proposed bringing her with him to town, but that she had refused, since their income had not been good this year, and she could see no real reason why the whole family need to come to Moscow, seeing that Lubotchka was as yet very young, and that the boys were living with me. A fact, she said, which made her feel as safe about them, as though she had been living with them herself. True, it is good for the boys to be here, went on Grandmamma yet in a tone which showed clearly that she did not think it was so very good, since it was more than time that they should be sent to Moscow to study, as well as to learn how to comport themselves in society. What sort of an education could they have got in the country? The eldest boy will soon be thirteen, and the second one eleven. As yet, my cousin, they are quite untaught, and do not know even how to enter a room. 
"'Nevertheless,' said the prince, "'I cannot understand these complaints of ruined fortunes. "'He has a very handsome income, and Natalia has Chabarovska, "'where we used to act plays, and which I know as well as I do my own hand. "'It is a splendid property, and ought to bring in an excellent return.' "'Well,' said Grandmamma, with a sad expression on her face, "'I do not mind telling you, as my most intimate friend, "'that all this seems to me a mere pretext on his part for living alone,' for strolling about from club to club, for attending dinner-parties, and for resorting to, well, who knows what? She suspects nothing. You know her angelic sweetness and her implicit trust of him in everything. He had only to tell her that the children must go to Moscow, and that she must be left behind in the country with a stupid governess for company, for her to believe him. I almost think that if you, if he were to say that the children must be whipped just as the Princess Barbara whips hers, she would believe even that and Grandmamma leant back in her armchair with an expression of contempt. Then, after a moment of silence, during which she took her handkerchief out of her pocket to wipe away a few tears which had stolen down her cheeks, she went on, "'Yes, my friend, I often think that he cannot value and understand her properly, and that, for all her goodness and love of him, and her endeavours to conceal her grief, which, however, as I know only too well, exists, she cannot really be happy with him. Mark my words, if he does not—' Here Grandmamma buried her face in the handkerchief. "'Ah, my dear old friend,' said the prince reproachfully, "'I think you are unreasonable. Why grieve and weep over imagined evils? That is not right. I have known him a long time, and feel sure that he is an attentive, kind, and excellent husband, as well as, which is the chief thing of all, a perfectly honourable man.' At this point, having been an involuntary auditor of a conversation not meant for my ears, I stole on tiptoe out of the room in a state of great distress. End of chapter 18